Our next scripture reading and uh, our text will be from Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, actually I'll read from verse 11 rather than verse 13. So verse 11 through to the end of chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all the disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The background to the letter of Hebrews is that of a congregation that is facing persecution. Uh, They face some persecution. Uh, We could read about it in the later chapters of Hebrews. They face some persecution. Uh, They met it all with great joy. It was no problem to them. No difficulty to them to lose all their possessions for the sake of Christ. But now the persecution seems to be ramping up and the storm clouds are gathering. They're beginning to suffer continuation fatigue. They're beginning to to wilt under the pressure. So the writer writes to them to encourage them, also to warn them about the dangers of falling away, but also to encourage them. He writes to them uh, essentially to say to them, There's no going back. They might have been tempted to turn around and go back. That's just to ease off. And he's saying to them, there's no going back. Because essentially, back is not there anymore for you. Uh, Who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? It's an interesting question. He he doesn't introduce himself. Uh, It might have been the Apostle Paul. Might well not have been. He doesn't introduce himself. Oregon, one of the church fathers, writing about 230 AD, he said that he thought the, the thought behind the letter belonged to Paul, but who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? God alone knows. Well, he, obviously um, the writer knew who he was. Obviously, the congregation he was writing to knew who he was. 
Uh, obviously, he knew who the congregation was that he was writing to. That's, there's no evidence, no sign of who they were actually in the letter itself. It's not that knowledge of him was lost over the, um, the 150 years or so uh, to the time of Oregon. It is that he has, and the letter has, a studied anonymity. He wanted to remain anonymous, and he did a very good job of it. Why did he want to remain anonymous? We don't know. Uh, perhaps because it was a time of persecution. Maybe he thought that if the congregation he was writing to was actually associated with him, it would cause them trouble. Uh, we see this sort of things uh, in communist lands that have, been, that have suffered persecution. Uh, the, the, the communications that goes between leaders and congregations, it's often anonymous. Um, who were they? Again, we don't know. Um, the, the writer, uh, he, was, he was not with them. He was far distant from them at the time, he says. Uh, he knew them very well. He was in a position to write direct to the congregation above the heads of the elders of the congregation. And he didn't do this in a bad way or a wrong way, but he told the members of the congregation, uh, don't give your elders any grief. Uh, that won't help you at all. He could write direct to the congregation. He knew them well enough to do that. How can we say, how can we be sure that he's a he? Uh, well, he reveals himself as a he, the underlying Greek in one little place, where in chapter 11, where he says, time forbids to tell me. Uh, he, he uses a Greek male uh, participle there, so he identifies himself as a he. But other than that, we don't really know who he was. He did a very good job of being anonymous. But the purpose was to encourage this congregation, wilting under weariness and persecution. The main focus of the letter is Christ. There's no going back. Back isn't there anymore. Christ is God's final word. Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan and promises. It's a long, sustained argument for the glory of Christ and the primacy of Christ and their response to that. And the passage that we read in chapter 6 is a passage that gives a strong encouragement to us to hold fast to the hope set before us. We look at the promise to Abraham and his heirs, and the guarantee of the promise, and at Christ the forerunner. So the promise to Abraham and his heirs. And the writer summarizes for us uh, that promise that the Lord made in Genesis chapter 22. Here in Hebrews, uh, he just quotes the beginning of it. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. But in fact, the promise made uh, back in Genesis 22 was longer than that and included all the former promises that had been made to Abraham concerning his progeny. 
these promises are that the Lord will bless Abraham and Sarah, his wife, with offspring. And this would be a miraculous event. As we perhaps mentioned this morning, um, Sarah was unable to bear children. She was well, well past the age of childbearing. Uh, Abraham himself was about 100 years old, but still um, from about age 75, the Lord had promised him uh, that he would have an heir and offspring. And he held on to that promise. The, the, the scripture tells us, Genesis 15, that he believed God. It doesn't say he believed in God. He believed God. When God spoke to him, he believed it. And God reckoned that to him as righteousness. There was a further promise, the promise given in Genesis 12, that the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. And here the thought of Paul starts to come in. In Galatians, Paul explains that that offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural, that offspring was Christ himself. So God was promising to Abraham that there would be an offspring who we know is Jesus the Messiah. He's promising to Abraham there would be an offspring, and through this offspring, through this distant, distant grand, 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 grand child of his, there would be a blessing for the whole wide world. And we are the heirs of the promise that is mentioned there. The promise was made not only to Abraham, but also to his heirs. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We are the heirs of that promise to Abraham. And you might think, well, I'm, I'm not descended from Abraham, as far as I know, I, I'm not genetically descended from Abraham. But spiritually, we are. Uh, the, the scripture points out, again, Paul in Galatians, the scripture points out to us that we, having faith in God's promise, are as our children of Abraham. We're spiritual, all of us, spiritual children of Abraham and Sarah. And so the promise is to us too. We have a promise from God. We who have fled for refuge have strong hope. Verse 18, those who have fled for refuge. And the hope is that Jesus entered heaven as priest, there to present to God uh, the blood, not of an animal sacrifice, but of the sacrifice of himself. He there presented the atoning work that he made for us to God. So the promise is our hope of heaven. The promise made to Abraham is the coming of Christ, uh, the efficiency the, the fullness of the work of Christ and our entering into heaven through faith in Christ. 
and there's a guarantee of the promise to Abraham and to us. God guaranteed his promise to Abraham. It was a guarantee that it was going to happen. It was it would come about. It's not like the guarantee for uh, an electrical appliance that you buy. Uh, the guarantee is that uh, if it breaks down, we'll, we'll try and fix it. Or if there's a faulty part, we'll replace it for you. N- no, no. No breaking down of God's promise. No faulty parts in the history of salvation. It was a guarantee that God's promise would not break. That it would be there fulfilled God's promise to Abraham of the heir, then of a saviour, then of the work that that saviour would do. And hence our salvation is to us too. And the writer to the Hebrews says there are two unchangeable things that will enable us to hold fast the hope set before us. These two unchangeable things are the guarantee of God. God has guaranteed that promise. What are they? Well, they're named here. We need to look at them a bit more closely. The two things are the word of God and the oath of God that God swore to confirm his word. Both are taken from the passage in Genesis 22 that is quoted here in Hebrews 6. The word of God. God has spoken. God's word is true. It cannot be broken. His promises are like silver refined in the fire seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. It's Psalm 12. John 17, 17. Your word is is truth. Full stop. Your word is truth. Here is one guarantee of the promise to Abraham and to us of Christ and of the work of Christ and of our hope of heaven. That promise. Here's one guarantee that it was spoken by God who cannot lie and who is able to see through and complete all of his promises. And as if that were not a strong enough guarantee, God added an oath. That's the second guarantee, the word of God. And the second is that God swore an oath to do what he said he was going to do. Uh, Genesis twenty-two sixteen says, God swore by himself. And the form of words, I will surely bless you, is the formula of an oath that was used in Old Testament times. I will surely do this. Uh, Very literally, blessing you, I will bless you. It's an oath formula. God was swearing an oath. And since there's nobody greater to swear by, God swore by himself. That's the double lock. On God's promise. Nothing could be more certain. It is the word of God. It is confirmed by God's oath to us. That Jesus would come. That Jesus would do what he promised to Abraham he would. And that through faith in Jesus we would be saved. And the promise is sealed to the 
heirs of Abraham too, not just to him. That means those who by faith are reckoned righteous with God. Those who have fled for refuge to God. So the promise is for us and a double guarantee for us. We as Christians can have full assurance of hope that the work that Christ did, he did all he intended it to do, that we are blessed of God with Christ's salvation. God has promised he cannot lie. He confirmed it with an oath. And the knowledge of this will produce hope in us. It it will produce patience in us. Patience to the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The effect of the guarantee is not to make us sluggish, not to sit back and say, God's done it all. I can just sit here and do whatever I want now. That, it's true, God has done it all. But that's not what we are to say. We are through patience and through faith, not to be sluggish, but to step out, to, enc- to be encouraged. Uh, in 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 everyday terms, we, we can't lose. God has promised. We step out boldly in this faith, and boldly to grow in holiness and good works, always relying on God. We can't lose. That's the incentive to step out in faith in God. The writer here also goes on to speak of Christ, the forerunner. As well as the double guarantee of the promise, there's a third strand noted here. It is that Christ has gone as a forerunner into the inner place behind the curtain. That is, into God's presence, that is, into heaven. Uh, He's speaking in terms of the, the temple in the Old Testament times. And you'll know the temple in the Old Testament times, it was a series of rooms. And uh, each room that you went into, stepping into it from the outside, each room as you progressed got holier and holier and holier um, until we got to the place which is known as the most holy place where God had said that he would put his name to dwell. Uh, We don't have holy places now. Our places of worship are not houses of God Uh, God does not dwell in houses made with human hands. They're they're convenient places, they're lovely places, but they are not houses of God. Only the temple at Jerusalem could ever claim to be that. But it didn't contain God, of course. It was the place where God had said that he would meet with his people. So Jesus went into God's presence uh, in behind the curtain that separated off the most holy place, went into God's presence, that is, into heaven. And because he's the forerunner, where he has gone, we are sure to follow. He's gone on our behalf. He's gone not just as a a scout to go there and uh, say that it's safe for us to follow. No, he's gone as the first one, and we will follow 
he's gone on our behalf. There, then, is another guarantee of the work of Christ on our behalf. So we've got three guarantees. The word of God, the oath of God, and the fact that Jesus has, has gone there and we're sure to follow as well. Two questions. To whom are these guarantees given? And what should be the effect here and now? Well, to whom are these guarantees given? They are to the heirs of the promise of Abraham. And to those who have fled for refuge. Uh, the two are synonymous. They're the same. Abraham, the man who had faith. And we are spiritually his children, his heirs, if we take after him, having faith. The very specific faith that we have, it is in Christ our Saviour, that he is able to save us uh, to the uttermost, as it says later in Hebrews, that he is able to save us from whatever. It is we who have fled for refuge. Uh, the writer includes himself in this group. It's we have fled for refuge, not, not you, congregation, I'm, I'm writing to. We have fled for refuge. Uh, maybe he's got in the back of his mind the cities of refuge in the Old Testament times. He, he's accounting himself as a Christian along with them here. Um, maybe he's thinking of those cities of refuge where if somebody had... Uh, had killed somebody accidentally, they could flee to the city of refuge. They'd be safe there. Maybe it's a strong tower of the Lord's name. Uh, the Lord's name is a strong and mighty tower and the righteous run into it and are saved. But it is to the heirs of Abraham and to those who have fled to God for refuge that the promises are given, this threefold promise, this triple lock of God's word, God's oath, and Christ's going ahead. What should the effect be here and now? Well, as I said, certainly not to fold our arms and sit back and take it easy because we've got it all uh, and it's guaranteed to us. The effect, uh, he puts it in a negative here, is not to be sluggish but rather be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's speaking about Abraham here. Uh, Abraham started to inherit the promise. He certainly saw his uh, son Isaac. I think he saw his grandson as well, one of the grand grandsons. Um, but of course not far, far centuries into the future. So we are to be imitators of Abraham who didn't sit back and said I've got it all but worked whose faith grew as he gave glory to God who had patience who continued to believe even against all the odds and against all of his senses his faith was active these promises and these, these guarantees are a strong encouragement to us to hold fast the hope 
that is set before us. Uh, The writer of Hebrews was writing to this congregation to tell them, hold fast, hang on. You can do, he says. Don't go back. Don't turn away. Don't lose faith. I know it's hard going for you, he says. But carry on. Have this strong encouragement that God has guaranteed your salvation. And we can keep going through many difficulties if we know we are victorious in the end. There's nothing like knowing that we're going to win in the end to help us keep going now. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Uh, the anchor was an early Christian symbol. You, you see it chalked up in the catacombs like, uh, like the fish. An anchor. Um, it's a symbol of hope. We may need to ride out a storm, but we've got an anchor that will help us to do that. We may face temptation to drift away from God, but we've got an anchor to stabilize us so we don't drift. We may need to stop and steady ourselves in the Lord, but we've got an anchor that we can lean on and rely on. The promise and its guarantees will anchor us and stabilize us. So God made the promise to Abraham. It was that he would have much progeny, but that there would be one through whom all the world would be blessed, and he was our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise was confirmed by an oath from God, as well as by the word of God. And as true heirs of Abraham, having a faith that is in Christ our Savior, we have those promises too, and those guarantees too. We are promised and guaranteed the outcome of our faith, which is our salvation in heaven. For Christ has gone as our forerunner. This gives us a sure hope, but a hope that doesn't sit back and do nothing, but an active hope leading to an active life of faith in God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement and the strengthening of your word. We thank you that we have these promises, the guarantees of these promises, of the efficiency of the work of Christ, of uh, the end of our faith, which is our hope, which is our hope of heaven. These promises guaranteed by your word and your oath and by Christ as forerunner. So we praise you, Lord, and we pray that we may have this as an anchor for our souls. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.